During the days of the Puritans and colonists, it was customary to preach several election day sermons just before the people chose their new representatives. Knowing that their security and liberty could be threatened, even taken from them, they sought for the best possible man to become the civil ruler of the land. This is the final sermon in a three-part series, now examining Jethro's counsel to Moses concerning the civil magistrate. Our old covenant reading coming from Exodus and chapter 18, Exodus and chapter 18, beginning in 13, verse 13, through the end of the chapter, verse 27. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning unto evening? Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God, and thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of ten. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. Paul writing to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 13, the first six verses, by the same spirit that moved the writer to write in Exodus, so does Paul write. And he says this by inspiration of God, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. 
Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Thus for us the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now for centuries the faithful church has admonished the people of God along with the general public while they still had a voice in the community to only elect rulers who are biblically qualified for the task of governing. Now, while no man on earth is perfect, and we must remember that, not even King David, not even Solomon, not even any of the judges, none of them were perfect. There must be some, by those who would rule, by those who would govern, there must be at least some adherence to what God says as to what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Those that are qualified for public office must possess the following according to Moses and Jethro. Number one, They must be able men. Notice verse 21 of Exodus 18. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men. In other words, these leaders must be men of mental, physical, moral, and spiritual strength. In other words, they must be resolute. They must be men of of valor, men of virtue, men of tenacity, men of courage. They must have an ability to stand to rule because ruling, governing, is a great burden. There's much upon the shoulders of men that would rule. The, Rev, the Reverend William N. Weichter comments, he says, A man who is a coward will not fulfill his duty to uphold God's law if doing so would be unpopular with the people. He continues, The demands of being a magistrate requires men who have the skills, in other words, men who have the ability which is necessary to lead others. Secondly, they must be men that fear God. Exodus 18.21 again, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of understanding. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't fear God, then you will fear man. A man that does not fear the Lord cannot possess these attributes which are entirely necessary for leadership. And Moses confirms this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 13. Notice what he says. Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes and I will make them rulers over you. Men who rule must be, therefore, of the highest caliber of biblical, moral, and personal integrity. They cannot be liars. They have to be, at least they have to show forth some moral integrity. The problem here that we face today in our nation, the sad situation that we face today in our nation, on the local, the state, and the national political scene, is that there are very few who actually fear God. They don't fear hell. They don't fear a judgment after their life is ended. They don't fear God at all, and so they believe that they can do whatever they want. Now, some might say that they are men who are religious or that they fear God, they don't actually possess the depth that is necessary, that religious resolve that is necessary for them to say that they have a holy fear of the wrath of God. So whenever we vet any 
magistrate, for any task, we should ask the one question. You know, usually what we ask is, well, what are you going to propose? What are you going to say about this? What about the economics? What about this? What about the other thing? Let's ask them the one question that is most necessary. Do you fear God? Do you believe that when you die, you will either face judgment or face God's embrace? Do you know that hell is real? Because those that do not fear God do not fear the judgment that will come in the afterlife, which makes them dangerous in this life. Men who do not fear God are a danger to liberty, a danger to the church, a danger to the Christian. As the scripture says of these reprobates, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Therefore, men who do not fear God refuse to consider their actions in light of eternal judgment, and that is the fault of the church. I know churches today, ministers today, who have political leaders, magistrates in their congregation who do not charge them severely, pointing them out as to their duty before God. The reformers did it to the kings and the queens, even in the fear that they might be beheaded because of it. So instead of instilling in men the fear of God, the church has produced a society which has suppressed the true character of a holy God who punishes the wicked in the afterlife. For many churches, preaching about hell is almost today non-existent. And so what we are given are choices which are less than perfect. Number three, those that rule also must be men committed to truth, the truth of God's revelation. Notice again, Verse 21 of Exodus 18. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth. And this means that those who rule must be honest. They can't be liars. They can't be speaking out of those sides of their mouth. When they say they'll do a thing, they do a thing. When they say they won't do a thing, they don't do the thing. Men of truth, they must be sensitive to what is right and what is wrong. They must be sensitive then therefore to the law of God since they are then called to be stewards of the law of God. If one is of the truth, he will seek to follow the truth in every area of life, both personally and professionally. John Calvin comments, and he says this about government, he says, no government can be happily established unless piety is the first concern. Holy kings are greatly praised in Scripture because they restored the worship of God when it was corrupted or destroyed or took care of religion that under them it might flourish pure and unblemished. In other words, not closing the churches, not mandating this and the other thing to the churches, but supporting the churches, especially in days of the plague, especially in days of difficulty. A ruler that loves the truth will defend the truth by acting justly. God is the God of truth. And therefore, they must know by the revelation of God, as it is set forth in Scripture, they, using the Scripture, must know right from wrong, good from evil, what is just as opposed to what is unjust. And the standard they use, it's got to be the Word of God. It can't be the Supreme Court or the Court of Pellets. It can't be what their mama says or their papa says or even what their minister says if he is out of line. It must be according to the word of God. On the other hand, the ruler that does not love the truth, notice there's a difference between knowing the truth and loving the truth. Everybody knows the truth. They suppress it, however, in unrighteousness. 
But a man who loves the truth will never suppress the truth. So a ruler that does not love the truth, he will act tyrannically and only in his own best interest at the expense of all those that get in his or her way. Jeremiah by the Spirit declares this in Jeremiah 22, 1 and following. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, that sitteth upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. That was the decree. That was the decree that God had given to Jeremiah for the king of Judah and for all magistrates that would come after that time. Civil rulers who do not love the truth will always be tempted to lie and perpetuate falsehoods depending on how it suits them. Liars and lovers of falsehoods are a scourge to the nation over which they preside. When these wicked rulers are given to a nation, as they have been given in history and even in our day today, it is a clear indication that the church has failed to lead the people and raise up godly men to actually seek positions of leadership. Ministers of God must understand that not only should they be vetting men who are qualified for the ecclesiastical positions of leadership, but they should be vetting men who might be given by the grace of God the ability to become civil leaders in their community, in the nation, or even in the world. So ministers should be looking out at the men in their congregation determining who might be qualified and then support their run for office so that men might regain the position of the magistrate. Number four, those that rule must also be men of honor by hating covetousness, which includes covetous of money, but not only covetous of money, but coveting power, coveting position, or coveting any human praises. Notice again verse 21. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Again, the Reverend Unwechter comments, he says, A man who is raised to the position of civil magistrate must be one who seeks no unjust gain from his position. He must hate, not simply dislike, but hate, in other words, there's a passion there, hates the thought of using his office to enrich himself through violence, fraud, bribes, etc. A covetous magistrate must also hate covetousness in others and not allow any citizen to use the power of the civil government to seize the wealth of his neighbor through unjust legislation or confiscatory taxation. He must hate with a passion men as well as himself of covetousness. Along with these qualifications, those that rule must have a working knowledge of both the duties as well as the limitations of government. And yet with all of this knowledge, invariably over and over, it seems as if this nation which was originally born out of Western civilizations, Christendom, even the Reformation itself, our nation is consistently faced 
continuously, it seems, faced with less than desirable choices. And in many cases, the choosing of the lesser of two evils, all of whom are biblically disqualified from holding public office. But you have to understand something. There will always be the choice between the lesser of two evils. And so, to reiterate, so there's no misunderstanding, whenever this scenario, let's say you have Diocletian and Nero running for office, then you abstain. But when you have such a choice as Nero, Diocletian, one thing can be certain. God is judging the nation, and especially the church for its apostasy. The Reverend Joseph Moorcraft rightly observes, he says, when God begins to judge a nation for its revolt against him, he removes effective leaders and replaces them with irresponsible and reckless ones who have no appreciation of the past and no commitment to the future under God. Isaiah confirms this observation when he says in Isaiah 3, 1 and following, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the take away from Jerusalem and from Judah, the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread, in other words, the gospel, and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of fifty and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator, and I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. And the people shall be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. That's what happens when the church remains silent. In America's history, it was customary for the ministers of the gospel to exhort their congregation as to biblical political decisions in any and every upcoming election. And these ministers were called to ensure that the standard of God, or at least the, the fundamental standards of God, was upheld from those seeking public office. That was their duty. The pulpit was to be a place where they would speak about politics. But today, the churches say, well, you know, we're not very political. The whole Bible's political. It's all about kings and rulers, judges and princes. And who is qualified to speak as to the character of these magistrates but the man, the faithful man in the pulpit and the faithful Christian who's both a priest and a prophet in their own right who sits under the preaching of such a man. So these ministers, along with their congregation, they were called to ensure that the standard of God was upheld for those seeking public office. And these election day sermons and political writings were the backbone of, of Puritan and colonial political life. And sometimes the decisions were difficult since the choices God had given these men were less than perfect. And that's always what we're going to get. We're going to get less than perfect. You want a perfect man? Are you a perfect man? Will you be a perfect leader? And yet you believe that you love truth, that you hate covetousness, that you're able. But you're still not perfect. So what are we really looking for? So these decisions, at best, are, are less than easy. Yet these ministers, along with their congregation, knew that no man was perfect. In light of that reality, they chose the best possible choice and prayed that God would bless their decision. They would choose the man that was most apt to following God's prescription for governance. And were they duped sometimes? Yes, absolutely. Men will say anything to get into office and then it doesn't matter what happens, they're already there. Between the years of 1760 and 1805, hundreds, 
hundreds of election day sermons were given in the churches of colonial America. These sermons were complemented by political tracts and pamphlets written by noted men of position in addition to other writings that were too scathing to have names attached to them. And so they would put the name anonymous. And so we find such titles as, quote, the importance of public virtue for a self-governing people and their importance of religion for public virtue by Anonymous. Now these political writings were penned by men like the Reverend Abraham Williams, Governor Stephen Hopkins, Statesman Richard Bland, Congregational Minister Daniel Shute, Reverend Nathaniel Emmons, Reverend Jeremiah Atwater, and a host of other men. These were men of the cloth. They were in the political fray up their eyeballs because they knew that it was so important to have ministers speak as to what the political realm should look like. The Reverend Williams, one of these faithful men, Abraham Williams, a great man who was challenging the apostasy of the churches that day. In fact, the apostate churches of that day would call him the great heretic, Williams. They hated his guts. He was regarded by some as the great heretic, Williams, because of his explosive lectures. He was writing things like this, quote, Government comes from God and his ordinance. The kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. The meaning is that God is the supreme governor and disposer of all things. His all-wise providence superintends all events, particularly those relating to mankind, and government is a divine constitution which must be agreeable to God. That was heretical. They hated that. The end and design, he continues, the end and design of civil society and government must be to secure the rights and properties of its members and promote their welfare. Not welfare, but their well-being or in the apostles' words that men may lead quiet and peaceable lives in godliness and honesty. In all governments, magistrates are God's ministers designed for good to the people. The end of their institution is to be instruments of divine providence, to secure and promote the happiness of society and to be terrors to the doers of evil, to prevent and punish unrighteousness and remedy the evils occasioned thereby and to be a praise, a security and a reward to them that do well. The end and design of government is to secure men from all injustice, violence and rapine, that they may enjoy their rights and properties with all the advantages of society along with the peaceable practice of godliness, that the unjust may be restrained, the ill effects of their wickedness be prevented, the secular welfare of all be secured and promoted, end quote. And for that he was a heretic. It was commonly understood that without God and his law structuring society. Through the leadership of godly magistrates, society would go into a graveyard spiral downward under the judgment of God, resulting in the unrestraint of man's most horrible sinfulness. And we are seeing that today in our land, and it is because the church has failed to be like Reverend Williams, to speak in such a way, not only from the pulpit, from, from the streets, from the housetops. It was the minister's task to warn the people of their duty in choosing only men of righteousness who feared God and who trembled at his word. Men who had biblical policies, even if they didn't say it came from this verse or that verse. And over time, these sermons and these writings, for whatever reason, 
lost their appeal from both ministers and congregational members alike. How many ministers are in the pulpits today speaking about what kind of leaders we should be installing into the office of magistrate? One of the pitfalls during this period was that natural law theory, which digressed into a form of man's rationalism, was placed on par with revelation. Common sense was good enough. It wasn't the revelation of Jesus Christ anymore. It was common sense. And I can tell you right now that because of man's fallibility and his fallen nature, common sense is not common. It's perverted. Without the standard of God's law being enacted, man cannot function properly. Men who held to a rational, libertarian, or natural law worldview was viewed as a godly candidate. As long as they weren't a horrible adulterer or a horrible sinner, they were okay. Ultimately, as a result of neglecting the revelation of God and equating it with man's natural idea of law, apostasy was inevitable. The overarching question, of course, which needs to be asked is, is very elemental. And we should ask the question, is the Bible God's word? Is it inspired? Is it the final authority on every matter, personally and institutionally? Is it the standard of life and faith? And does it have anything to say about how a man governs? These are the questions that we have to ask our candidates. Or perhaps we can hear it in their speeches. Because if all of these things are true, then shouldn't it be obeyed? Shouldn't the word of God be obeyed, especially when it comes to government? When it comes to law and jurisprudence? And the answer is absolutely yes. Yes, the scriptures are to be mankind's rule exclusively for faith and life, especially when it comes to government. Even when it says by Isaiah's prophecy that the government should be upon his shoulders. And therefore, we need to put men in governance which will understand that they are accountable to the governor of nations. Let's consider another question. What practical issues have led to this dramatic departure from Scripture when it comes to government and the choosing of those seeking to be the governor of the people? Now, the Scripture cannot be clearer. Second Samuel 23.3 He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. And this obviously is a political statement which concerns itself with the choosing of rulers from the least even to the greatest. R.J. Rushton, Reverend R.J. Rushton, he comments on exactly what justice means. Notice, not social justice. He says this, justice means God's law. This was understood by Christians throughout the centuries and it was the basis of their political action. The efforts of the church in the West especially to influence or command the state had as their purpose the rule of God's law in the state. End quote. Now there are two fundamental situations or perhaps sins which have undermined the church and her commission as counselors and prophets in the arena of politics and government. And what is so sad is that these sinful doctrines and practices have not found their encouragement from the secular world only, but rather they have originated for the most part within the community of the church itself. So the problem with the church's apostasy did not originate out there. It originated right inside the walls of the church. The first sin, that is the first reason why there has been a departure from the scriptures, is 
anti-Christian education. When the people of God give their children to Pharaoh and Caesar and expect them to be God-fearing. The acceptance and adoption of state-run schooling by professing Christians have indoctrinated the last several generations into the idea that the state is God and that religion has no place in the political and legal world which leads us to the second sin. To give a covenant child to the state for the molding of their character by secularizing them and indoctrinating them, having it cloaked in the language of education. Oh, we're just educating them. That's sin. They're not educating them. They're indoctrinating them. And what is amazing to me today more than anything else, which I never would have thought, is Christian parents are still keeping their children in the schools despite the debacle, the wretchedness, the rapes, the transgender movement, and all of the other nonsense that's happening in the churches. They're still arguing, well, we have to fix our school. You can't fix the school. It's doing exactly what it was meant to do, destroy Christendom. Once a population is educated by an establishment which is anti-God, anti-creation, and anti-morality, the result will eventually be seen in the culture, and that's what we have. And every minister that allows their congregation members to continue to put their children in the government school should be defrocked and called a heretic and burnt at the stake. They should be barred from the communion table because they are acting against the sovereign creator of the world. Once the youth is indoctrinated in this fashion, the culture becomes a culture of chaos and a culture of death. And that's what we have today. The second sin is this. Fleeing from reality. The doctrine of pietism dispensationalism, the two-kingdom mentality and Zionism together have destroyed the power of the church from protecting the culture from reprobate man's secular assault and dominion. In other words, oh, we have to just be holy and waiting for Jesus to come. I can't fix the church. I can't fix the state. I have to just hang out in the church and in my four-walled ghetto sanctuary, I don't need to do anything to fix the culture because Jesus is coming because the culture belongs to the devil. That's the furthest thing from the truth. It might lie in the wicked one. It may lie in wickedness, but the world belongs to the sovereign king of the universe who died and rose again and took dominion when he sent the spirit of Pentecost. So anyone that believes that the world belongs to Satan hasn't read their Bible. These doctrines find their appeal in man's desire to be irresponsible. Well, since I can't do anything to change the world because I don't have to, I'm not responsible. I don't have to get off of my seat (laughs) and make a difference out there. All I have to do is raise my children, read them a little devotion, be good, and I'm good to go. Wicked men desire nothing more than to be removed from any responsibility that may be uncomfortable or challenging. So they invent doctrines which ensure the church's neutrality, making her a slave to the state. And so while they enjoy the nanny state stimulus money, their socialism and tyrannical mandates, they hide out in the church waiting for the rapture. And while the world crumbles around them and their entire generation, ensuring a, a legacy of destruction for their children, their hopes evaporate under the tyranny of the state and the impotence of the church 
So they call upon God to deliver them by come quickly, Lord Jesus. The next question I think is probably the weightier question of them all. What is to be done? But I think even more pressing is, what is to be done now? What's the plan? Which, if faithfully executed, can and will bring this nation to its proper place of biblical leadership? Should God bless the efforts of his people? And the answers are pretty much right before us. Second Samuel 23.3. That gives the overall view of who should rule. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So the question is, who are the just men? What makes a man holy and just? What makes a man worthy of, of the magistrate? Now these are Christian men in word and deed, consistent in doctrine and conduct. You can know a man by their fruit. What they say, they mean. They mean what they say and they act according to what they have promised. Secondly, they are men with a Christ-centered world and life view. And they must have a Christ-centered world and life philosophy that's reflected in their policies. You know, you may not like someone, but if their policy reflects biblical truth, then maybe he's worth taking a second look at. I could tell you this, even though Constantine the Great was a wicked man and did wicked things, he did more for Christendom than most because his policies were rooted in Scripture. He didn't know it, but they were. And if you were to look at him and, and analyze him, or at least his policies, not him, but his policies, they were pretty Christ-centered. We have to bring men into the position of office, not power, mind you, but office. Those men who believe in confronting the culture with these biblical policies. Those who are not escapists, nor those who are not pragmatists. Men who understand the situation, and as hard and complex as they may seem, they are not afraid to find real answers from the Scripture. They know Scripture. They have to at least know Scripture. They should be going to church. They should be under a minister. Another way, according to Reverend Gary Huffman, is that these men know their history. Therefore, they have a context for Christ's plan and purpose. What we have today are leaders that are saying, we have to erase history because some of it was bad. All the history is going to be having pockmarks of wickedness and badness. But it's still history. It's still God's providence. You can't erase history. Because once you erase history, you can manufacture any future. Any future you want. Also, these men must have their homes in order. Husbands and fathers of men and men who are, have integrity, faithful to their wives and loving to their children. And as we have already determined, they have to be men of integrity, not selfish, prideful, contentious. They know how to conduct themselves graciously with others, even when there's, there's contention. Note Jethro's first plan of action. The first thing that Jethro advises is, whomsoever rules, he must be for the people Godward. In other words, he must have the people's best interest in mind, which can only be accomplished by honoring God and his law word. 
Notice what he says, verse 19 of Exodus 18. Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee, be thou for the people Godward. In other words, you have to have the people's best interest in view. And that means that you desire for God to bless the people. And the only way for that to happen is if the people are obedient to the will of God and they are then given liberty under God. Not tyranny, but liberty. Jethro is telling Moses that God abides by his covenant stipulations of causes tree. In other words, obey and be blessed, rebel and be cursed. And so Jethro's recommendation of Exodus 18 is God's commandment to the church and to every nation which exists on the face of the planet Earth. God had promised Israel, which is also a covenant promise to us, the New Testament Israel, that if we obey God, and that's always been the rub, what's so hard? What's so difficult in saying, I will mortify my selfishness, my lusts, and I will obey. I will do everything in my power to do what is right and obey God. And therefore, if we obey... God has promised to make us a great and prosperous people, a great and prosperous nation. We would then be the envy of every other nation. But that's only if we adopt God's divine principles of government, law, and jurisprudence. And that means choosing righteous, God-fearing men to the various civil offices of society. Remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 and the following? He said, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous, as all his laws which I said before you this day? Do you think when the President of the United States goes into these other nations, that those leaders are saying, wow, this is a very strong leader. He is a great man and we respect him for his governance. The guy's a buffoon. The guy's a, a, a reproach. And people are laughing. And Moses, his words have fallen on deaf ears. In the months before Lee's surrender at Appomattox, sad day, in 1863, the Reverend Joseph Stye, a Georgia soldier of the 53rd Regiment of the Confederate Army, in an appeal to the Confederate States, he wrote a treatise called National Rectitude, the Only True Basis of National Prosperity. Okay, so this man, Joseph Stye, writes this. He says, In arranging the evidence of our grand national duty, it becomes us to remember that God is the one great witness of earth. National rectitude therefore demands national consecration to the which his kingdom is established by the word of God. Notice, national consecration. To stand and say, we consecrate, we dedicate our nation to the Christ of God. A public declaration. If the churches would band together and do such a thing, what a great resounding it would be in the nation's he continues, Man has but two possible objects of supreme pursuit. God or the world. The very first work of life is to choose between them. 
the very first work of life, your work of life, is to choose. What do you choose? God or the world? Because you cannot serve both. And the reason why we are in the predicament that we're in is because we have chosen both. And we have vacillated between God and Baal. And we don't know how to answer the words of Elijah when he asked the people of God, choose you who you will serve. Choose this day who you serve. And they couldn't answer him a word. So before we consider some of the strategies for reformation and reconstruction, there's one other aspect to consider concerning wicked rulers. Wicked rulers are illegitimate rulers. Providentially, they are ordained of God for the chastisement and judgment of nations, but they are nevertheless illegitimate. R.J. Rushdie comments again, he says again and again, the problem of legitimacy confronts man. The taint of illegitimacy is more than a legal question or a personal question as in being an illegitimate child. It has reference to the basic order of life which has been violated. Much of the time, men do not question the legitimacy of their social order nor of their political leaders. They simply live with them for better or for worse. However, when the religious foundations of a society begin to crack, then all kinds of questions arise and their basic thrust is to challenge the legitimacy of the order. Legitimacy is a religious concept. The legitimate order, whether it be a church, state, family, school, industry, or anything else, must have its roots in the basic beliefs of society. No illegitimate ruler can possibly be a good or wise ruler, since the man who rules illegitimately rules in violation of the basic presuppositions of the culture, end quote. So how many illegitimate rulers do we have ruling? Let me count the waves, I'll be here till next month. According to Holy Scripture, the basic presuppositions of a legitimate social order are found in the law of God and the qualifications for those that rule are also found in that law. These alone are what legitimizes any and all rulers. Professor Kevin Clausen comments, he says, God's people and godless societies both have been perpetually confronted with the issue of authority. More specifically, the question becomes, by what standard will the civil laws of a nation be crafted? What will be the source of public law? There must be a standard for public law. Romans 13 verse 4 claims that civil rulers are ministers of God. If they are ministers or servants of the Lord, then they are obligated to follow their master's commandments, end quote. Okay, so where do we begin? What is the plan for America's return to God? Well, you'll be able to help in that direction on Tuesday. But what is the plan? Well, number one, figure out who are, who are those who are qualified to rule. They must be Christian men, basically. Their policies must reflect Christian ideas, a Christian world and life view. They must be for the people, they have to look at the Bible as God's word. They have to be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. They must believe in engagement, not in escapism. In other words, their eschatology, even if they don't articulate it in the way we articulate it, their eschatology cannot be one of defeatism. They must be ready to win for the people, for liberty under God. 
They should have a working knowledge of God's law and the history of the world from a Christocentric vantage point. And this means that pulpits must be able to teach God's law and the aspects of history that are relevant to politics and the social order. Secondly, the church must get involved. The men of the church must get involved in civil action from both the pulpit and by creating specialized training facilities for those who would be biblical statesmen. And we start with children. Because for many of us it may be too late. I hope not. But we have to look at the next generation. Sometimes I'm so discouraged with our generation that I just look to the next. Because maybe, just maybe, God will show us mercy. Okay, so how do we do this? Well, we teach God's law. We teach the law of God and the application of the law of God locally, statewide, nationally. We teach our people how to take a biblical position on a wide range of social issues. By teaching history and the application thereof from a providential viewpoint. By teaching those men how to apply scripture to every aspect of society. Train them to avoid the pitfalls of the media and what Reverend Dr. Gary Huffman calls the hype of sensational exaggeration, both on the liberal side and on the conservative. We also ought to train others as watchmen, legislative executives, judicial and media watchmen who can sift through the noise and warn the people when issues arise that threaten civility from, from, from the tyranny of, of wicked men to bring freedom and God's social order to bear. And we are at a crossroads today where we might have to build a parallel society because of the destruction of what our society has experienced. And that means if we're going to build a parallel society, we have to build it upon the rock. Now at this point in time, we don't have the perfect candidate. As I said before, there isn't any. But we do have a choice to make. And since we will abide under some form of rule, whether you like it or not, someone's going to win. We have a choice to make. Because we will abide under some form of rule. And since we have to abide under some form of rule, we need to make the best decision possible until we can set up a scenario where there is a clear biblical choice. In fact, wouldn't it be great if you had a choice between a godly man and a godly man? And then you had a choice between a real godly man and a real godly man. And then you had a choice to make between a man who feared God to the depth of his soul and then a man who feared God to the depth of his soul. That's a hard choice. But we will choose. And our choice will determine what form of rule we will live under. May God raise up a generation of Christian warriors to confront the apostasy of our day in both church and state. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.